Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey friends, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is episode 12 of season 2. It is the episode for the assignment of March 16th through 22nd, Jacob 5 through 7, The Lord Labors With Us. Um, we're going to be talking all about that long, super long, so long allegory of the olive tree today. Before we get started, though, I wanted to say thank you to Leanna Lou and Chelsea Lifts 04 for leaving wonderful reviews for me on iTunes. Um, you guys are so sweet. You know how to bring a girl to tears. I'm just saying. But if you would feel like you want to go leave a review on iTunes, go ahead and do it. It's a great way to boost more people see the Savior said and the Savior said love. And it just shares goodness all around, right? So um, if you feel so inclined to go leave a review, go for it. All right. But now we are jumping right on in. And guys, I have to tell you, like this chapter has been one that I have been dreading, like from the very beginning. Um, the olive, the allegory, the olive gory. It <laughs> the olive gory. Can we call it the olive gory? The allegory of the olive tree. The allegory of the olive tree has been like, oh, one of those big giant like hurdles I knew was coming, and I was like, oh, I really don't want to do this. And so all along, I've been like, maybe I can interview someone that week. Like, maybe I can get my parents to come on because my mom like loves the allegory of the olive tree. And I was like, maybe I can get her to come on. And But no, my mom has other stuff going on this week, and she couldn't come do an interview for it. And I was like, well, maybe I can get somebody else to come on and do it. No, it just never worked out. So um, y'all are getting me <laughs> doing the parable of the olive tree. And I think one of the big mental roadblocks that I have had towards the parable of the olive tree, I keep saying parable. It's an allegory. Is there a difference between a parable and allegory? I don't know. That's a good um, mental thought experiment for yourself. But anyways, the allegory of the olive tree, the the big mental block I think when I have, when I start reading about it and thinking about it, is it's so long and it's so drawn out. Like, okay, so I consider myself an uber nerd. Like I'm definitely a nerd, but y'all are going to pull my nerd card when I tell you this. Um, I do not like the writer Tolkien. Um, like J.R.R. Tolkien, like the Lord of the Rings guy. Um, I've tried to read his books before, but to me, they are like these long, drawn out, like descriptive passages that I'm just like, oh my gosh, you could have made that like 10 times shorter. Like you just described somebody walking by a tree and it took you five pages to describe the dang tree. Like, can we not like pick it up a little bit? I'm like, dude, you just made battle boring. Like, how is that possible? And so then I go back to Jacob and it reminds me of reading Tolkien. Like, this is so long and so drawn out. And I'm like, how many times are we going to start grafting stuff in? And how many times are we going to like be sad over the branches we're losing? And how like, and it's all about Israel. Like, what does that have to do with me? You know, and these are all thoughts that I had going into this week. Well, I had these thoughts and I went in and I did some research and I feel like I found ways to apply it to my life. And I feel like I found ways 
where this is actually a parable that's incredibly hopeful. And it fills me with a lot of hope and a lot of joy and a lot of just faith for the future. And so if I can find that, I hope I can share that with you so that when you are seeing like this big monumental like woof of a chapter that you don't get so overwhelmed like I used to do. Like literally, guys, Jacob 5 used to be like my stopping point for the Book of Mormon. You know, when you're like, okay, I'm going to read the Book of Mormon again. And you get to that point where you're finally like, okay, and I'm done. I'm going to do something else. Like Jacob 5 has always been kind of my roadblock. So that's like where I had to break through this week. Here we go. Let's go into Come Follow Me, Jacob 5 through 7. And it says, there are many, many people who haven't yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you ever feel overwhelmed by the immensity of the task of gathering them into the Lord's church, the allegory of the olive trees in Jacob 5 has a reassuring reminder. The vineyard belongs to the Lord. He has given each of us a small area to assist in his work, our family, our circle of friends, our sphere of influence. And sometimes the first person we help gather is ourselves. Deep. I like that. Come follow me. But we are never alone in this work, for the Lord of the vineyard labors alongside his servants. God knows and loves his children, and he will prepare a way for each of them to hear his gospel, even those who have rejected him in the past. And then when the work is done, all those who have been diligent and laboring with him shall have joy with him because of the fruit of his vineyard. Okay, so this is an incredibly hopeful um, piece of scripture, I guess, for those of us who have had family members or people that we love fall away from the church, um, who have moved away from the church, you know, for whatever reason, have turned themselves away from the church, that... This is incredibly hopeful. Even those who have rejected him in the past still have hope for the future. And that's really one of the first places where I really started to see myself as I went through um, Jacob chapter five and, you know, the following verses and stuff like that um, was really like, okay, so, you know, the people that I love that have left the church, okay, like my husband, or I have like a really good friend who's left the church, you know, there's still hope for them. And we can even see that as we roll on back into chapter four of Jacob, you know, he's setting this whole thing up and he says, he's talking about the Jews and the stumbling blocks and they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have a safe foundation. And is it possible? And this is in 17. After having rejected the sure foundation, can they ever build upon it? Can it ever become the head of their cornerstone? Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. If I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over anxiety for you. That's Jacob. I I think about this task that Jacob had. Like he's quoting this big, long, giant, like epic Tolkien length parable about an olive tree. And Jacob was born in the wilderness, you know, and here in the new world has probably never seen an olive tree. So he's got to rely on all this description from Zenos, this prophet, you know, who he's quoting from and rely on his description of olive trees. So Let's do some background here really quick, and let's talk about Zenos. Who is Zenos? So this is from the Student Institute Manual um, for the Book of Mormon. I guess the Book of Mormon Student Manual for Institute. I guess that's a better way to say it. But it is from there. It's from their Jacob 5 chapter. It says, Zenos was a Hebrew prophet whose writings appeared on the brass plates, but who is not mentioned in the Old Testament? He lived sometime after the prophet Abraham, but before the prophet Isaiah. And we know that from Helaman 8, 19 through 20. We know he testified concerning the death and redemption of the Son of God. Zenos is most particularly known because of his famous allegory of the olive tree. From this allegory, it is clear that he was a prophet and seer. Okay, so that's who Zenos is. So Jacob, who's never before seen an olive tree in his life, probably, is going back and he's quoting 
this allegory of the olive tree. Now, why would he do that? So he started out talking about the Jews and the stumbling block of the Jews. And, but can they ever build upon the stumbling block again? Is there ever hope for them? And then he tells the allegory of the olive tree. Like, do you see how he's building up here? Like the allegory of the olive tree, like this is how I'm going to tell you if there's hope for them, right? And how the Lord works with us. And so there's a really great quote from Jeffrey R. Holland. Y'all know. I love some Jeffrey R. Holland. Um, we haven't quoted J.R.H. in here um, in a long time, so I'm glad I get a chance to do that today. So here's what he says. This allegory, as recounted by Jacob, is from the outset intended to be about Christ. Even as the Lord of the vineyard and his workers strive to bolster, prune, purify, and otherwise make productive their trees in what amounts to a one-chapter historical sketch of the scattering and gathering of Israel, the deep meaning of the atonement undergirds and overarches their labors. In spite of cuttings and graftings and nourishings that mix the mingle the trees in virtually all parts of the vineyard, it is bringing them back to their source. That is the principal theme of this allegory. Returning, repenting, reuniting, at one mint. This is the message throughout the allegory. At least 15 times, the Lord of the vineyard expresses a desire to bring the vineyard and its harvest to his own self. And he laments this loss no more than eight times. He says, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. One student of the allegory says it should take its place besides the parable of the prodigal son, inasmuch as both stories make the Lord's mercy so movingly memorable. Clearly, this at one minute is hard. It's demanding and at times deeply painful work. And anyone who has had anyone fall away from the church in their lives knows it is deeply painful work. All right as the work of redemption always is. There is digging, there is dunging, there is watering, there is nourishing, there is pruning, and there is always the endless approaches to grafting, all to one saving end, that the trees of the vineyard would thrive exceedingly and become one body, the fruits being equal, with the Lord of the vineyard having preserved unto himself the fruit. From all the distant places of sin and alienation in which the children of the Father find themselves, it has always been the work of Christ and his disciples in every dispensation to gather them, to heal them, and to unite them with their master. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Okay. Because here's the thing is I was like, okay, scattering and gathering of Israel. Like, what does that have to do with me? Like that is, I guess a whole bunch of people. I'm a, I consider myself a Gentile, I guess, because I'm not part of the tribe of Judah. So why do I really care what happened to the tri- tribe of Judah and, you know, the Lord's chosen people or whatever? But then I started thinking about, okay, well, that's the Lord's chosen people. Like, that's what they call themselves. And then I started thinking about patriarchal blessings. And I'm like, well, Lexi, doesn't your patriarchal blessing say you were chosen to be sent forth in this time? And I'm like, mm, hey, so... I'm also chosen in some ways too. And as a member of the church, aren't I also part of the Lord's people? Aren't I part of his work in his vineyard? And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I can see that. But still, this happened a long time ago. Like, what does this have to do with me? And then I start looking at it more and more. I'm like, okay, well, I could see how this takes place in my life because of the work that I do with my husband or my best friend or, you know, the various people in my life that have left the church. And I'm like, okay, so I'm starting to see this more and more. Okay, to make the allegory come even like clearer to me was to learn more about the olive trees. Because I was like, you know, fruit tree, schmoot tree. Like, can I just like have them be peach trees? Because I like peaches better. Like, can I just not have them be peach trees? Like, and they graft in peach branches. I know they do grafting with peach trees. Like, can it, can it be peaches? Well, no, 
Um, the reason they use olive trees is because there's apparently a whole lot of symbolism that goes into the olive tree. Olive trees, interestingly enough, are apparently very like malleable trees, I guess. And they're very finicky trees. And they're very sensitive. There's lots of different techniques that you can use with these trees to get them to produce the fruit that you want. Um, I have never heard so much gardening technique and I guess savvy have to go into like raising these olive trees. So I actually, you know, one of my favorite commentaries that I use is the Book of Mormon Made Easier. And they found from one of the older student institute manuals of the Book of Mormon, it was from the 1996 version that they found, a really good description of some of the husbandry that has to take place for olive trees. And one other thing I want to add is that, you know, a lot of times they talk about the vineyard like the olive tree in the vineyard. And when you think of like a vineyard, you think of like grapes and wine and stuff like that. So why are we talking about olive trees in a vineyard? Wouldn't it have been an olive grove? But um, there's a Hugh Nibley video out there that talks about Jacob 5. And I would post it to my social media, except for like it made not a lot of sense. Like I got a little bit out of it, but it was mostly him stringing words together that like I know, but I didn't understand what he meant when he strung those particular words in that particular arrangement together. Um, so I mean, I'll, I'll post out there, I guess, if you guys want. But the one thing I did take out of it is that there is a word carom that is used in the Old Testament to mean both olive and vineyard. Like that, you know, because they were such staple crops there in the Middle East, that they used the word vineyard for olives and grapes. So there you go. That That is my contribution from Hugh Nibley. All right. Going into the Institute Manual, the 1996 edition. This is from the Book of Mormon Student Manual, pages 47 and 48. I have not been able to find this online, so I'm just giving you that resource in case you can go find a copy of it somewhere. Okay. They say, the use of the olive tree as a symbol for the house of Israel is an excellent example of how God uses symbolism to teach his children gospel laws and principles. For centuries, the olive tree has been associated with peace, war, and its grim attendance of destruction, rape of the land, siege, and death were hardly conducive to the cultivation of olive orchards that require many years of careful husbandry to bring into full production. When the dove returned to the ark, it carried an olive leaf in its beak, as though to symbolize that God was again at peace with the earth. The olive branch was used in ancient Greece and Rome to signify peace, and it is still used in that sense in the great seal of the United States, where the American eagle is shown grasping an olive branch in its talons. The only true source of peace is Jesus Christ. We know this, the Prince of Peace. His peace comes through obedience to the laws and ordinance of the gospel. These laws and ordinances are given to the world through the house of Israel, symbolized by the olive tree. Okay, pause. So this is Lexi. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what the house of Israel has to do with me. Okay, duh. All right, unpause. Someone once said that Israel was not chosen to be an uplifted people, but an uplifting people. There is further symbolic significance in the cultivation of an olive tree. If the green slip of an olive tree is merely planted and allowed to grow, it develops into the wild olive a bush that grows without control into a tangle of limbs and branches, producing only a small, worthless fruit. To become the productive, tame olive tree that we hear about in this paragory, paragory, allegory, <laughs> the parable allegory, the main stem of the wild tree must be cut back completely and a branch from a tame olive tree grafted into the stem of the wild one. With careful pruning, the cultivating tree will begin to produce its first fruit in about seven years. Okay, pause. So you start this process and you'll get results in seven years. Okay, is this telling you that, you know, when you start working with someone who has left the church, 
it may not be an immediate fix. Like that's one of the first things I started learning, like as I was going through and learning this about like the olive trees, I'm like, oh my gosh, seven years to get the first fruit. Like, okay, so uh, this is slow work. The work of the Lord is often slow work. Um, this whole entire allegory spans centuries and, you know, eons. And that's because the work of the Lord is slow, but it comes to pass, right? And I think sometimes I get so impatient with it that I'm like, come on, hurry up, hurry up. But, you know, this is the Lord telling me again, like, Lexi, be patient. I got this. I got this. Just, you know, breathe, Lexi. That's what he tells me a lot of times. All right. So here we go. It produces its first fruit about seven years and it will become not become fully productive until 15 years. From the time it produces its first fruit at year seven, it won't be completely productive olive tree until it's 15 years old. Okay. In other words, the olive tree cannot become productive by itself. It requires grafting by the husbandman to bring it into production. Throughout its history, Israel has demonstrated the remarkable aptness characterized by the symbol of the olive tree. When they gave themselves to their God for pruning and grafting, the Israelites prospered and bore much fruit. But when they turned from Christ, the master of the vineyard, and sought to become their own source of sustenance, they became wild and unfruitful. Two other characteristics of the olive tree further illustrate how it is an appropriate symbol for Israel. First, though requiring nearly 15 years to come into full production, an olive tree may produce fruit for centuries. Some trees now growing in the Holy Land have been producing fruit abundantly for at least 400 years. That's crazy. Oh my goodness. Okay. The second amazing quality of the tree is that as it finally grows old and begins to die, its roots send up a number of new green shoots that if you take and you graft and prune will mature into full grown olive trees. The root of the tree will also send up shoots after the tree is cut down. Thus, while the tree itself may produce fruit for centuries, the root of the tree may go on to produce fruit and new trees for millennia. It is believed that some of the ancient olive trees located in Israel today have come from the trees that were ancient, trees that were already ancient during Christ's mortal ministry. Are you getting goosebumps? I'm getting goosebumps. Like there were trees that were already old when Christ was on the earth and there are still shoots from those trees in Israel today. That's really, really cool. How can Israel be compared to an olive tree, which time and time again seems to have been cut down and destroyed, yet each time a new tree springs forth from the roots? Zenos was not the only prophet to use the olive tree as a symbol for the chosen people of God. Jeremiah, foreseeing the coming destruction of the Jews by Babylonia, compared the covenant people to a green olive tree consumed by fire. The Apostle Paul used a brief allegory almost identical to that of Zenos to warn the Roman Christians against pride as they compared their favored position to that of the Jews. In modern revelation, the Lord uses the parable of the vineyard and olive trees to show his will concerning the redemption of Zion, and that's in DNC 101. Okay, so do you start to see like how the husbandry of the olive tree, the careful cultivation of the olive tree, how that kind of lends some weight, I guess, to this particular allegory, it starts making it like more real. Another thing that was really interesting to me, I went online and I was like, hey, so if I wanted to plant an olive tree in my backyard, you know, like what would I need to do just out of curiosity? And oh my gosh, there's like pages and pages and pages. Like you can't use this kind of dirt and you can't use this kind of fertilizer, but you can use this kind of fertilizer and you can't water it too much, but you have to water it regularly. And it is a desert plant, so it needs this amount of sun, but you can't let it burn. And then you also have to do this and you have to dig trenches and do not use wood mulch. And I mean, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. 
And there was also a really interesting comment that in ancient Israel, one of the things that they used to do to kind of like tame these trees again, like they're domesticated trees. Like that concept is so interesting to me. Um, one of the things that they would do to kind of make, make these trees more fruitful is they would tie rocks to the ends of the branches of these trees so that the branches would hang down so that they were more accessible to those who are picking fruit and those who are trying to get the fruit down off the tree. So are there ways that the Lord like reaches down to us to make his, you know, fruit, his gospel more accessible to us in our everyday life? And I think there are. So when we're talking about the whole concept of like wild olive trees and tame olive trees, because I totally did not get that. I was like, like, you know, wild and tame. I mean, like, are we talking about like domesticated cats and dogs? Because there's a difference between a wild cat and a tame cat, you know? Like, yeah, it's, it's similar. Like the domesticated olive tree produces good fruit and the wild olive tree is kind of like a weed, right? It's like a big weedy bush, like kind of is what it seems like. Okay. All that to say that having this background, I now understand the parable a little bit more, allegory a little bit more. I'm just going to use those words interchangeably, guys. Okay. I'm just going to do that. All right. So let's go back into come follow me (laughs) as I went down, you know, one of my rabbit trails that I so love. All right. So first section here is what is an allegory? And allegories are stories that teach spiritual truths through symbols. In the allegory of the olive tree, for example, a vineyard represents the world. A tame olive tree represents Israel and those who have made covenants with God, which is all of us. You know, we shall be raising our hand. And wild olive trees represent the Gentile nations, those who have not made covenants with God. Okay, so that's a good little background on what allegories are. Um, they did nothing to do like the whole allegory versus parable kind of debate there. But um, yeah, so it's a story that teaches specific truths, right? Um, okay, so next section, Jacob 5, 6, 3 through 5. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the vineyard. Before you begin your study of the allegory of the olive trees in Jacob 5, it might be helpful to review Jacob 4, 10 through 18, which we did the stumbling block, right? To learn why Jacob felt inspired to share this allegory with his people. In Jacob 6, 3-5, you can find some additional messages that Jacob wanted to emphasize. And look for these messages in the allegory. All right. Jacob 5 is a long chapter. It is a long chapter. It's the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon. And so, Come Follow Me has very helpfully divided it up into sections. So you've got the scattering of Israel from before the time of Christ, the ministry of Christ and the apostles, the great apostasy, the gathering of Israel in the latter days, the millennium, and the end of the world. All right, and it also gives you a diagram at the end that kind of like illustrates like all the different parts of the allegory. I'm not going to go in and like really kind of delve into that because I feel like you are smart, independent thinking people and you can go look at the chart yourself and figure it out. And I also didn't feel like knowing what each particular part of the parable, at least for me, wasn't what made the difference. What made the difference to me was going in and looking at how the master of the vineyard and his servant, how they cared for the olive trees. And to that end, I want to talk about a book um, that has made a big difference in my life. And it is called Rescuing Wayward Children by Larry Barkdale. I think I've talked about this book in other episodes. Um, So (laughs) y'all know, like the one big thing that I talk about almost in every single episode, like I think ever, and I'm sorry that I talk about it so much, but you know, my husband leaving the church is a really big deal to me. It's something that weighs on me every single day of my life. And so that's why I talk about it so, so frequently. But it's also why this parable today was so helpful. Um, and so it's something I pray about. It's something I think about a lot, which by the way, pause. Okay. So I, I felt like we need to have a talk here. Um, my husband is a really good guy, guys. Like I really want to make sure that you know that because I feel like he gets a lot of really bad 
stuff here on this episode on the podcast episodes like i feel like i'm always like you love the church he hates the church and i lost my mind on valentine's day and i just want you guys to know he really is a nice guy um he is like my rock and he's my foundation all the times when i lose my mind and just go like start raving mad he's there for me he pulls me back in um he's solid you know i talk all the time about wanting to be more dependable and reliable and that's what he is he is solid and he's dependable and he's reliable and that to me is just so incredibly comforting and he's just just a really good guy he really does love me he takes great care of our family and so I just wanted to say that um because I feel like he gets a really bad rap a lot of times but I wouldn't be so upset about him not being a member of the church anymore and him being you know turning away from the gospel if I didn't really love him and so the fact that I do really love him is what drives me to be so incredibly concerned for him so thank you for letting me have that aside. Now, going back into Rescuing Wayward Children um, by Larry Barkdall, this book has made a huge difference to me. And even though it's like says Rescuing Wayward Children, I would say anybody in your life that you have has left the church and you are like trying everything you can to shepherd them back in, but you're not really sure if your efforts are being successful or if they were ever bear fruit, like, you know, the wild olive trees and everything. Um it's really good. It's got some really good insight for you. But it's got some really good insight about this particular allegory that we are talking about this week. And this comes from chapter five of the Rescuing Wayward Children book. Okay. It says, Zenis's allegory of the tame olive trees gone wild in the Book of Mormon is clearly symbolic of God's nourishing and reclaiming the house of Israel. But Israel is also a metaphor for the redemption of the individual. So not only is this Israel, guys, like this is Lexi, not the book, but not only is this Israel, like I was like, oh, this is like the children of Israel. Why do I care? But it's also about rescuing the individual, which is like kind of what I came to learn this week. This allegory can thus be applied to God's dealings with his individual wayward children. Therefore, as we explore this allegory and the other related parables of salvation, insert the name of your wayward loved one into the place of the central characters. Well, that's a good idea. Think of your your wayward loved one as we're talking about these wild olive trees and the trees that have lost their fruit, right? When we are first introduced to the tree in Jacob 5, we are led to understand that this tree, this child or person, was a favorite of the Lord of the vineyard, who represents God the Father. Evidently, this was a tree he had lovingly nourished for a very long time. And then as the tree grew, a crisis occurred. Okay, so we know about this and it started to wither. He attempted to save it. Then he starts his many attempts to save it. And that includes grafting it onto the wild olive trees, which apparently was like a really risky thing to do, um, I guess. But it says, in allowing the tame tree to mix with the wild tree, he was attempting to save the undecayed part using any means available, even if that meant temporarily allowing the otherwise unthinkable commingling. Although the Lord knew that the tame tree would bring forth wild fruit for a time, nevertheless, he was in control of the eventual outcome. In the meantime, he was willing to do whatever he had to do with his present resources to save the tree. All right. Do we ever see that where, you know, yeah, for whatever reason, our loved one is not no longer in the church, but the Lord is doing whatever he can with whatever resources he has at the moment and that he knows the eventual outcome and that he is in control of the entire situation. Like that was a huge part of the allegory for me this week. Zenus is careful to describe not only the Lord's strategy, but also his character as this prophet unfolds his allegory. For example, at every step, the Lord is grieved that he should lose his tree. So as upset as I am about my husband not being a member of the church and turning away from the church and all that stuff, the Lord is probably a hundred times more upset about it and a hundred times more dedicated to bringing him back and a hundred times more 
hopeful about that happening than I am, you know, with as much as I do love my husband. And that to me was also just a huge example of the Lord's love and his mercy this week. And not only how much he loves me and he wants me to be happy, but he also wants my husband to be happy and come back. Zenas lists the Lord's multiple efforts to save the tree and also emphasizes that each of the Lord's efforts is followed by a long periods of the Lord's waiting to assess the tree's progress. Those of us who have those who have lost the church, left the church, y'all, we have to wait a long time, many times. So waiting is definitely part of the allegory as well. Although each effort results in a failure or a complication, the Lord does not give up. I think that's really important too, because there have been times where I'm like, oh, I'm just giving up. Like he's just never coming back, but the Lord doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on us or, or his olive trees here. Rather, he starts over with more digging, more pruning, more nourishing. He is always working to preserve the good parts of the tree. And so then it talks about how over time he guides segments of it into different areas of the tree and the agonizing journey. And finally, with its grafted in wild branches, It's like a Franken tree, right? Okay. The tree appears so broken, fragmented, and disfigured that it no longer resembles its original self. At one point, when we finally allow ourselves to feel the tiniest hope that progress is made, we discover that the tree's roots and tops are out of balance and threaten its survival. Worse, the tame branches that the Lord had tried to preserve in another part of the vineyard have now become corrupt and overrun with wild branches. More tree surgery is needed. We wonder what could ever put this tree back together and cause it to bring forth good fruit again. Yes, I felt that. Yes. And an amazing thing happens here. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard wept and said unto his servant, what could I have done more? And that's from Jacob 541. In tears, the Lord reviews all that he has tried over long periods of time to save the tree. And now he mourns that the tree not only continues to bring forth evil fruit, but it has corrupted the trees near it. Contemplating such a dire situation, God weeps. And who would not? After all his efforts and endurance, the perfect, long-suffering father laments that he seemed to have no other option except to hew the tree down along with those it had corrupted and cast them all into the fire. Then when the Lord fully intends to cast the corrupt tree into its companions into the fire, that they cumber not the ground of the vineyard, the mediating servant, who is Jesus Christ, steps forward and pleads, spare it a little longer. The character and the mission of the Savior is revealed here. The Savior has suffered for all of us and does not want his sacrifice to become a thing of naught. He suffered for our misdeeds and overcame everything that stood between all of us and our wayward ones and exaltation, if we would repent and come back to him. Therefore, the Savior pleading with the Lord of the vineyard for more patience and clemency for this corrupt tree eventually convinces the Lord of the vineyard, who is still grieved to lose his tree, to try yet one more time. Then the Lord of the vineyard comes up with a final, elaborate plan. Notice that he is the one who devises the plan, and he is the one who is in charge of its entire execution. Together, the Lord and his servants set out to graft and pluck and work every segment of the tree from its roots to its branches, a total makeover. Their combined effort is beyond anything that had previously been attempted. The plan calls for the Lord enlisting other servants as well. Wherefore, let us go to and labor with our might this last time, the Lord tells his servants. And that's from Jacob 5.62. Prune, graft in the branches, dig about, dung them once more for the last time. That's from Jacob 5.63-64. The Lord's enormous effort, which spans his kingdom and involves vast amounts of time and resources, ends with his full restoration and redemption of his beloved one olive tree. 
This wasn't for like an entire grove of olive trees or vineyard of olive trees. It was for one, just by the way, this allegory was, which was most precious unto him from the beginning. And that's from Jacob 574. Now and forever, the saved one would produce good and natural fruit. The lesson here is that God is who he is because he is the best at what he does. And what he does is the work of redemption. It is his work and his glory. His complete reason for being and his greatest source of joy are wrapped up in this single work. He has been doing it for a very long time and he doesn't fail. So when we think about, and book, okay, so this is Lexi now. So when we think about our loved ones who have left the church or have gone astray or have turned away from God and things like that, you know, we got to remember it's in his hands and he is the master at this. Um, we haven't failed in some way when we have someone we love that has gone astray, whether it be a child or, you know, a friend, a leader, whatever. Um, it's not us that's failed. I mean, think about Judas. Judas had the perfect friend and teacher and leader that he could possibly have. And Judas still made the ultimate betrayal and turned away from the gospel right? So it doesn't matter how good of a parent you are, how good of a wife you are, how good of a brother or sister you are. You know, that person makes that choice to move away from the gospel and they are in the gardener's hands, the master of the vineyard's hands, our heavenly father's hands. And he is the one that can bring them back to his vineyard and can save them. And I love that, you know, there was this big, long, huge allegory about, you know, olive trees and all the stuff that the Lord of the vineyard had to do. And it was for one, one olive tree. And that olive tree was so important to him that he was willing to do that. And he does that for every single one of us. We are all so important to him that he does that for us. So that is really what I got out of the parable of the olive tree. I know it was a lot of reading. I'm sorry about that. But that's really like the reading and the words and stuff that really inspired me this week as I went about, um, kind of looking over what the allegory of the olive tree, what it meant and what it meant to me. And that's really what I came up with was that it means that the Lord doesn't give up and he is the master gardener and to leave it in his hands and to trust him and just be, you know, someone who's there kind of like, you know, putting fertilizer on the little tree and, um, you know, seeing how it grows. So that's what I came up with. All right. The next section is God invites me to help him gather his children. The other servants that were called into the Lord's vineyard include people like you. As members of the church, we are all responsible to help God gather his children. And it says, what principles do you find in Jacob 5, but especially in verses 61, 62, and in 70, 75, about working in the Lord's vineyard? Well, let us see. Let us see what we find there, okay? 61, 62, here we go. Wherefore, go to and call servants, that we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard, that we may prepare the way that I may bring forth again the natural fruit, which natural fruit is good and most precious above all other fruit. Okay, so what I learned there from 61 is that go call servants. Servants with like an S on the end. And that I think I feel like a lot of times when we start talking about those who have fallen away from the church and we feel like we need to bring them back in, we feel like it's solely responsible on us and ourselves and maybe like a spouse or, you know, family members and things like that. But there are servants who are supposed to be bringing this person back in. Well, who are these servants? It can be anyone from, you know, ministering brothers and sisters, you know, or bishops. It can be your friends. It can be, again, family members, multiple family members. But there is power in multiple people praying for one person to come back. Um, You know, even we have Alma the elder praying for Alma the younger to come back. 
And in Mosiah 27, 14, it says, And again the angel said, Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people, and also the prayers of his servant Alma, who is his father. All right, so we hear, we hear a lot about Alma praying for his son, and that's why the angel appeared to Alma the younger and brought him back and everything. But there are also prayers of the people. Um, there are lots of people praying for him. So I think we're not alone in this is what we need to take from it. And to gather all those that we can to pray for those that we love, who we need to bring back into the church, who have become, you know, those wild olive branches or whatever, and bring them back. Um there's power in unity and we are supposed to be one. We're supposed to be Zion. And so gathering those people around you, gathering your Zion around you to pray for that person, I think is very powerful. And that's something that I think I'm going to try and do. So that was something I learned from those verses. Then continuing on with come follow me, it says, how have you felt him call you to serve in his vineyard? And I think they're talking about missionary work in this particular instance. In fact, I know they are because it says, see also missionary work. But when I think of this, I actually think of family history. Um, I love doing family history. I love finding stories about my ancestors and stuff like that. But I think, you know, we are working in the vineyard on both sides of the veil. And we can be working with our brothers and sisters here in this mortal life, which, you know, is what we need to be doing. And we need to be setting a good example every day. But I also think it's vitally important that we work in the vineyard on the other side of the veil as well. While we have the tools and the instruments that we have here in our life, as in like the covenants and ordinances and things like that, to help bring them to salvation and bring them to that master gardener, then we can do it for them, right? And so I love using family history work as a way to kind of bring those wild olive branches there in my family tree, like, oh, what a pun, right? Bring those wild olive branches from my family tree into the master gardener, yeah? So um, that's what I thought of when I saw that section. Okay, so we're going to talk about this last, the last chapter here. I can stand strong when others challenge my faith. And it says, the Nephites experience with Sherem is often repeated today. There may be learned, well-spoken people who try to destroy your faith, but Jacob could not be shaken. How did Jacob respond when his faith was attacked? He basically bore his testimony. And what do you learn from his responses? And what can you do now to prepare for times where your faith will be challenged? Well, I want to pause there and like go and like rewind on back in because here's, here's the thing. Sherem, his story to me after reading like the allegory of the olive tree and everything this week, his story to me was so different because instead of seeing it as like, you know, someone attacking the faith of Jacob, I actually saw it as kind of a redemptive story. Like here is someone who feels so far gone from the gospel, has turned his back so completely upon the gospel that he has made it his mission in life to destroy the church. Like, and he's doing everything he can to bring followers to his side and everything like that. And he's attacking Jacob, I guess, or whatever. But Jacob is able to kind of lead him through an experience where, you know, Sherem is saying like, show me a sign, show me a sign and everything. And in 14, Jacob says, what am I that I should tempt God to show unto thee a sign and this thing which thou already knowest to be true? Yet thou wilt deny it because thou art of the devil. Nevertheless, not my will be done. But if God shall smite thee, let that be a sign unto thee that he has power in both heaven and in earth and also that Christ shall come. And thy will, O Lord, be done and not mine. 15. And it came to pass that when I, Jacob, had spoken these words, the power of the Lord came upon him insomuch that he fell to the earth. And it came to pass that he was nourished for the space of many days. So Sherem has passed out. It's interesting to me that Jacob already knows that Sherem knows the truth. 
Um, he's just fighting it himself, right? Jacob kind of, you know, zaps him, I guess, and he falls over and he's, you know, passed out for the space of many days and they're taking care of him. And we read in 16, and it came to pass that he, Sherem, said unto the people, gather together on the morrow for I shall die. Wherefore, I desire to speak unto this people before I die. And it came to pass that on the morrow the multitude were gathered together, and he spake plainly unto them, and denied the things which he had taught them, and confessed the Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost and the ministering angels. And he spake plainly unto them that he had been deceived by the power of the devil, and he spake of hell and of eternity and of eternal punishment. And he said, I fear lest I have committed the unpardonable sin. I don't think he has. We're going to talk about that in a moment. For I have lied unto God, for I denied the Christ, and said I believed the Scriptures, and they truly testify of him. And because I have thus lied unto God, I greatly fear lest my case shall be awful, but I confess unto God. And it came to pass that when he said these words, he could say no more, and he gave up the ghost. When the multitude had witnessed that he spake these things as he was about to give up the ghost, they were astonished exceedingly, insomuch that the power of God came down upon them, and they were overcome that they fell to the earth. Now, this thing was pleasing unto me, Jacob, which I'm like, Jacob, really? You were happy they all passed out, but okay, Uh, continuing on. For I had requested of my father who was in heaven, for he had heard my cry and answered my prayer. And it came to pass that the peace and love of God was restored again among the people, and they searched the scriptures and hearkened no more to the words of this wicked man. Okay, so here's why I think that this particular story of Sherem was like not just randomly included. I think it was included right at the end of the story of the allegory, because here we have a olive tree that has obviously gone rogue, right? It's, it's become a wild olive tree. Sherem, he's going around and he's trying to, to like share his wild olive branches with everybody he meets. And he knows though, deep down the truth. And I think that is so important for us to know, especially when we have loved ones who are vocal against the church is that they know deep down the truth. Because here's the thing, if it wasn't true, what are they fighting? You know, Um, if it wasn't true, then they wouldn't have to keep fighting it. And they're really fighting themselves. And we see that with Paul. We saw that with Alma the Younger. We see that here with Sherem. You see it with all kinds of different like antichrists. I'm saying that in quotation marks, that they always have a testimony. And then just like the allegory at the very end, Right before they die, usually they have a deathbed, you know, repentance situation where they confess Jesus Christ and that they know that he was the God and he was there all along. Um, In this particular case, Sherem says he concerns that he's committed the unpardonable sin. And, you know, I don't want to get into woo-woo territory because I know, you know, we get stuff with sons of perdition and whatnot. I don't think that he could have because as far as I'm concerned, to commit the unpardonable sin would be to know God completely and fully and to deny him and to continue denying him. And number one, I don't think Sherem had that kind of knowledge to be able to commit that sin. And number two, I also see the end where Sherem comes around and he's like, no, he's there. And I believe in him and I believe in Christ. And he testifies to the people of of them. And so I don't think someone who's committed that sin could actually turn around and then testify. I don't know. Maybe there's doctrine out there that says, you know, otherwise, but I also don't think that that's necessarily like saving doctrine. I think that's more of like a woo-woo land kind of thing. So I don't want to go too deep into that, but this gives me hope. And I hope for those of you who have loved ones who are antagonistic towards the church that this gives you hope. Not that we want them to like stand up, bear their testimony and die, you know, but that this came right after an allegory where the Lord pours everything he has into this one olive tree and then it eventually comes around and becomes good, puts forth good fruit again. 
There's always hope, and especially for those of us who have strongly antagonistic friends and family who are anti-the church, just know that they're fighting it. They feel it, and that's why they're fighting it. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, Like I said, the allegory of the olive tree I was not looking forward to, but it turned out to be an incredibly amazing, hopeful, and just restorative allegory. And I'm so glad that we had it in our scriptures this week, and I'm grateful to come follow me for that. Um, I'm grateful you guys let me kind of weave in my personal story and stuff into it, and I hope you got something out of it. Again, this was personal revelation to me, and that's the beautiful thing about allegories is that what I've gotten out of this, you may get something totally different out of, and that's perfect because that's revelation for you, and that's what Heavenly Father needed you to hear. So you guys just got to hear my revelation, and I hope it helped you some. So have a great week. I hope you guys have an awesome week this week, and I hope it is warm and sunny wherever you are. We are about to get a bunch more rain, and it's cold and yucky, and I'm tired, and I'm ready for spring. So I hope it's warm and sunny wherever you are, and I will see you here next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening. 